0: Welcome to Attack of the Killer Podcast. On this episode, we'll be talking about a music producer who really lost his head. Tell Star, the Joe Meek story, commentary track on this episode of Attack of the Killer Podcast. Attention
1: planet
2: Earth and beyond. Stay tuned for Attack of the Killer Podcast.
0: Greetings, young and old, to episode 213. They say the Meek shall inherit the earth, but not in this case. We are doing a commentary episode to the 2008 biopic, Tell Star, the Joe Meek story, suggested by our fellow attacker, Tim lenner More on him in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. now, uh, you too can also request for us to do a commentary episode. For a movie of your choice, if you become an official official attacker. And you can do that by going to jointheattackers.com. There you can see different options to support the show and all the cool stuff you can get when you do. Uh, one of which is shout-outs on the show. And now we have three new attackers. So who
3: are going to get some shout outs. Yeah. They figured out how cool that website is. jointheattackers.com. Yeah. First off we have Rod Hutchinson and then we have
0: Carmen DeHague. And lastly, Jason Godsell, Jackson Godsell, Jackson is what I said, right? Jackson Godsill. His favorite character is Jason Voorhees. That's right. That's what I heard. So that's where I got confused.
3: So thanks. Jackson, Carmen and Rod, the Rodster. So glad you guys are attackers yes, now.
0: Definitely. Thank Welcome you for to the family supporting the show and becoming part of the attacker family. Uh, you are now officially one of us and you too can become one of us again by going to join the attackers.com.
3: Oh man, those guys get so much cool stuff. Now they get to show off to all their friends. That's not even fair.
0: That's right. It's totally not fair, but, uh, Hey, you can level a playing field again by going to jointheattackers.com. Anyway, uh, so now I'm going to say that this is going to be a very big departure from our normal show. Um, especially with this particular commentary. So usually attack of the killer podcast is a horror movie podcast where a group of friends get together and talk about films within a certain topic. Now there's usually spoilers. And with this particular episode, there's definitely going to be spoilers. Cause we're going to talk about the whole movie all the way to the end. Cause it's a commentary track and you can watch along with the movie while you listen to the show. That's how it works. So fun. So now it's time for you all to meet these friends that I was just talking about. That's right. It's time to introduce you to the podcast crew. He came ready to this episode with his Neko Joe Meek action figure with removable head, Jason Bollinger. Man,
3: the decapitation jokes. That's my last one. Is it? Well, until the commentary. Right. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. I just want to tell everyone that you can follow the podcast at AOTKP on Twitter and at the, at attack of the killer podcast everywhere else, Instagram, Facebook, I'm also pretty excited that we just launched a brand new website, um, attack of the or, or aotkp.com. They both take you there. And when you're checking out the new site, click on the contest button. We're doing a contest all summer. We're giving away lots of really, really cool prizes. And all you got to do is just give us an email, sign up for our mailing list. And uh, that's it. And you can win something super freaking cool. But yeah, just go to AOTKP.com and check it out. Next up,
0: this man needs no introduction. You probably should. Next, much like (laughs) Screaming Lord Such song, he is also black and hairy. Brian Kark.
4: (laughs) Is your name Mary Kelly? Hello, everybody.
0: (laughs) And lastly the man who made this episode possible from the fiasco brothers, watch a movie, Tim Leonard,
2: you know, for 10 bucks, I can make you guys do whatever I want.
0: (laughs) Oh, Ted, how's it going?
5: (laughs) I'm okay. (laughs) Oh, Ted's here. (laughs) Okay.
0: So my goodness. Fiasco. So, uh, Tim, why don't you tell us about your show? Fiasco brothers, watch a movie.
2: Uh, I can't remember exactly which Attack of the Killer podcast cast member said, said it about us, but he said, hour-long discussions of movies that don't deserve to be talked about for an hour, and, <laughs> and I hope we've lived up to that. Uh, we just celebrated wrapping up our second year with uh, God Told Me To by Larry Cohen, which definitely deserves to be talked about for at least half an hour. <laughs> We, we tried to do, we tried to articulate what we love about these weird little cult movies, oddities, strange things people might not know anything about. Our slogan was almost because somebody has to love these mutants. (laughs) And it's just, uh, my, my fiasco sibling from another parental unit, Sean and I trying to make each other watch something that we might not have seen, try to, try to talk about it, talk about the socioeconomic climate when it was being made, all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we've done, actually we've done two black and white, languidly paced, foreign language, subtitled vampire movies. So if, if you didn't like the first one, we can try the other one. We, uh, that's, that's basically it. We, we do the thing because somebody had to,
3: (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, it's a fun show. I love it. You always get me to want to watch whatever you're talking about. So thank you. It works.
2: Yeah, well, this was episode four, if I remember right, so we're getting to it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So, um, real quick, Attack of the Killer podcast is sponsored by Shudder. Shudder Shudder is an online streaming service, uh, the Netflix for horror, as they say. You need to check it out, and you can check it out. For free for a full month on us here at Attack of the Killer Podcast. Just enter the promo code AOTKP and get your first month free, but then you'll be hooked. You'll be hooked and you get your full subscription and you will be a better person for it. And now it's time to turn it over to Tad for what we watched.
5: Welcome to What We Watched. It's a roundtable discussion about what we've watched since the last time we recorded. I'm just going to go ahead and go to Mike first. What have you watched? Well, I, uh, w- I, I went to the drive-in,
0: actually just last night, and saw the double bill of Ghostbusters and Jumanji Next Level, and we decided to go because... Um, uh, Ghostbusters is one of Brandy's favorite movies, and it's a very important movie in her life. So getting to see it together was amazing, and especially at a drive-in was definitely so much fun. That's a cool that's a cool freaking drive-in. I like that place. Um, and then she took a nap while I watched Jumanji <laughs> Next Level, which isn't bad. It was pretty good. I mean, I still haven't seen the first one. So there's some stuff that uh, I can only assume um, is covered in the first film. Um and then and then I also watched um uh really the only thing I really uh had a chance to watch lately is I rewatched um uh Biohazard from the Fred Owen Ray film from nineteen eighty three. And I love that movie. I mean it's such a it's it's so bad, but it's so great. it, it's probably in my opinion one of the greatest endings in movie history cuz they just stop making the movie. I mean that's literally how it ends. Like the big mon- there, there's a monster that reveals itself at the end and our action hero looks straightly in the camera and says cut and then it just cuts to credits. They end the movie with an outtake and it's freaking awesome.
5: And that's all I watched. Excellent. I saw uh, Ghostbusters at the drive in the night before you, but we didn't stick around for uh, the second movie. It was it was a lot of fun, but we had some things. uh, It was sort of a crazy night for us. So uh, anyways, Uh, Jason, what did you watch?
3: Oh, okay. I watched a few things. Um, it's not really horror, but my gosh, I just fell in love with this movie, and I fell in love with Weird Paul. I know Mike watched it too.
0: Oh, crap. I forgot to mention that, uh, but you're mentioning it anyways. So.
3: Yep. Um, it's called Will Work for Views, The Lo-Fi Life of Weird Paul. Didn't know Weird Paul existed. I don't, don't even know what made me click on it, but I fell in love with it. It's, Weird Al's brother? No, not in any way. You might think that, but no. Um, it's just this guy that, uh, is probably our age, let's say forties. And he got a VHS camera when he was a little kid and he just started and he started making content long before there was a YouTube, he made videos, he you know, the, like he probably made the original unboxing video and he was just this weird little kid that didn't, wasn't very popular and just scrawny and he just kind of just started making these weird ass videos and he's still doing it. And it, and, and this movie is like a documentary on his life. And it kind of just shows this guy trying to get out of the day job and trying to make this thing he loves doing, creating content as his way of life. And it's so endearing and
0: yeah, he's uh, awesome and amazing. And, like you you're not really a hundred percent sure if he is if it's all intentional or if if he's in on the joke or not you know like but he's in no in, he seems like a pretty smart guy, but right. he does some crazy goofy stuff,
3: but yeah he's in in no way um uh, on the on the scale. Um, he's not well, we Wesley made, Willis in yeah I was going to say we, we not,
0: made comparisons to like Wesley Willis or um, but Daniel same, Johnson or
3: yeah and but at the same time his stuff's kind of bad too you know and that's why he's just like trying so hard and his stuff isn't that great because he can't afford good things but he's just oh he's trying so hard and he, and he does it all on VHS yeah that's, that was still the, still today
0: yeah that's the thing like he has a pretty Big presence on YouTube. Pretty popular. I mean, I went down the rabbit hole over Did the weekend okay, watching videos okay. of shit that people send them. Yeah. And it's just tons and people just send them anything just, and everything. Like, nuts. it's just it's so much just garbage. It and sounds like a much
5: happier version of TV junkie.
0: I have not seen I that. I have not seen that, but I may have to check that out.
5: Yeah, it's the um, dude that that was supposed to be, he was at the Tiger King's uh Oh. Oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a super depressing documentary. Oh,
0: no, this yeah, this is definitely upbeat and fun.
5: Yeah, I mean he's a,
0: <clears throat> he's a fun guy who would want to be around. Totally. Um I mean he's a musician too, and he does all these crazy for,
3: and, and I that's freaking where, love his music. Yeah. I, I was shocked after hearing the music that Mike hadn't heard of him, because it's very, very hilarious. And and the music's good, but the lyrics is not. He's singing about Peanut butter. My favorite
0: is peanut butter recall. And, That's know, the name of the song.
3: They're like bad, but it's so good. I, I don't know. It's it's really kind of fun. This this guy just trying to be creative, and it's it's wonderful. Well, I
0: didn't make this comparison to you, and this is mostly just going to be meaningful to you and me, Jason. But like his music kind of reminds me of the bastard.
3: Yeah, it's. The
4: music. The music
0: is very well done, but the lyrics are like so nonsense.
4: Did they talk? Did they talk about his Squirm album?
0: I don't. No, I don't think they talked about that one. You're familiar
4: with the movie Squirm, the killer worm movie?
0: Yeah. Jeff
4: Leberman. Weird Paul wrote an album called "There's a Worm in My Egg Cream." And every single song (laughs) is called, there's a worm in my egg cream, but they all have slightly (laughs) different lyrics, but they're all about the scene where the guy finds a worm in his egg cream.
0: Oh my God. That's amazing. I so want more of his music.
3: So I just, you know, you, you get to the end of this and you just, you, you can't not love the dude and it was great. So, and that's free on Amazon prime, I believe. Uh another thing I watched, and Mike, you half ass watched it with me also was VHS.
0: Yeah, I was was working on stuff and I was kind of trying to hold off on watching it. So
3: Yeah, I I enjoyed it. It was a stream of consciousness fucking VHS Laden trip of what could end up on a tape. <laughs> if you tape over enough shit, but at the end there was a pretty good story, you know, um, I, uh, where's this one at? Was this on shutter? I can't remember. Hulu, I think. Oh yeah. Hulu. Um, it's really good. It's pretty good. And then I watched, um, you should have left. I watched that last night with Kevin Bacon and Amanda C. Fried. It's A24. No, it's uh bum house. It's Blum house. Yeah. Yep. Um, Yeah. so yeah, the, those two and the little kid, they go away to kind of, she's an actress. She, he has a kind of a past and they go away to ahead of a movie production. They go uh, like a month early out in the country to this crazy house. And, um, it's, it's neat. Um, I'm not, It's not that there's a lot of ghosty type things, but so at the time I'm like, I don't, I'm not a ghosty guy, but at the end you realize that it's not so much that it's ghosty. It's more of like a lesson thing. I don't know. It's, it's not bad, but the, the thing I want to talk about the most, I'm so, I I didn't even realize that Netflix has uh, been putting a shit ton of Kung Fu films on there. And I watched uh, Little Dragon Maiden, 1983. It's a Shaw Brothers film. Ooh. And it's, I, I, you've probably had to seen some clips of this because I'll just have to say that near the end, uh, the, the main character uh, befriends a giant bird that helps him fight the bad guy. So nice. there's this man in a giant bird suit. Holy shit, it's on fu Netflix. Film. Yeah, and there's a shit ton. There's a, there's at least a dozen kick ass old kung fu films. Uh, I and mean, I didn't think
0: Netflix showed anything before
4: oh, no. the year 2000 anymore. Well, they I just saw. dropped that kung fu documentary
0: uh, oh, a few months wow.
4: ago. So it could be in response to that. And Amazon Prime has a boatload of not just Shaw Brothers, but a lot of old Jimmy Wang Yu stuff from after he left Shaw Brothers and uh, a bunch of other ones too. So yeah, there is a plethora of great Kung Fu stuff to watch on streaming right now.
2: That's if you awesome. have a chance, uh, heroes of the East is a Kung Fu romantic comedy in which, uh, he and she break up. She goes back to, uh, to Japan to be with her mom. He writes a letter from China, her seven martial arts tutors read the letter, <laughs> take it the wrong way. Of course. And there's an amazing shot of like seven burly Japanese guys looking at a piece of paper going, Mm. <laughs> then the rest of the movie is our hero Gordon Liu with hair uh, fighting seven Japanese grandmasters. But love it! It's a romantic comedy. Nobody dies, and you will not believe the crab fist technique even after you've seen
3: it. <laughs> this movie I watched uh, it has a frog technique that's uh, pretty amazing. It's fu- it's more funny than real but uh I just uh, I grew up watching a lot of kung fu as a kid on USA and I just have such a nostalgic place for it and I was so happy to see it and um, that's what I watched
0: what was the name of that one again
3: that one was called oh man you gotta see it little dragon maiden from
5: 1983 so good did you have anything else that you watch? That's it, man. All right. Well, I'm just going to cut right here in line and go through mine cuz it's really quick. I also saw Ghostbusters at the drive-in. Um I sort of alluded to our weird night. I I a lot like Tim and very nervous about going out and getting out and stuff, so it was sort of a big deal to get out of the house and travel and go do something. So, I was already sort of uh anxious and we get there and got situated way too early and everything, but um Then my dog started to throw up in the backseat of the car because we brought him because he hates fireworks and we went on 4th of July. But luckily, we've trained him to puke in bags, so he puked in a bag. Um, But in the process of me getting the bag out for him, um, apparently... I knew at some point I felt down t- to my hand and I was missing my wedding band. And I'm like, Oh, that's not good. Oh, I, no. And I was like, did I leave it at home? Like, did I somehow, cause I haven't left the house in so long, maybe I left it at home. And, but I, I was like, no, I remember wearing it stuff. So I called my sister who has a key to my house. Cause we're like an hour and a half away from home. And she's like, I'll check and wasn't here at home. So then it was even worse. And I realized at some point I must've put it in my lap to sanitize my hands. And then the dog was going to puke. So I jumped up and, uh, it fell out of my lap. So I luckily opened the car door and turned on the flashlight and it was there in the gravel, but, um, Oh, I, fantastic. But the whole time I was sitting there watching a the movie, I had no idea where it was and I'm panicking. So I didn't really enjoy my night to be oh. honest. Uh,
4: I was oh. really hoping that was going to end with the ring being in the bag of dog puke.
5: Uh, no, I was no. headed there. We <laughs> no. were thinking it was, no, Nikki was feeding him too much of uh, her soft pretzel, and I think it was too hot and he was too excited to be on a car ride, so he got overwhelmed and started throwing up. But like I said, I grabbed a bag. We we always carry dog shit bags anyway. So uh but yeah, that I can't say I really actually watched much of Ghostbusters because I was a nervous <laughs> wreck the entire time oh. searching the car, you know, tearing up the car looking for my ring that I didn't know where it was, whatever, but it all ended up okay. Everybody's good. So um
0: That reminds me of the time when I lived in Pittsburgh and i lost my wallet we we would go to rocky horror picture show like every like almost every weekend out in one of the burbs areas of of pittsburgh and for halloween they uh halloween they had a triple feature it started with rocky at midnight and it was an all night thing um they show also showed basket case 2 and toxic avenger part 2 so that's cool seeing on the big screen but it was like kind of like Not as fun as it could have been because I realized I had lost my wallet during Rocky Horror. And in where I lived, you couldn't even get into the building without your ID, which was in my wallet. But luckily, it got turned in by the end of the night. So
3: thank goodness. Yeah, Yeah, we
5: had somebody lose their phone at the last Rocky Horror we did. And they're like, we put it in our bag, our prop bag. And I'm like, oh, we only have 350 of them on the floor right now. I am (laughs) not going through them. And luckily somehow I swept them all up with like snow shovels and and threw them in the dumpster. And someone walking down the alley heard the phone ringing in the dumpster and pulled it out by some goddamn miracle. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like I said, an anxious night, but I technically can say I saw Ghostbusters as a drive-in. Other things I watched, I have, we just wrapped right before we started recording. I finished the uh, first season of the new Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, which is pretty good. Um, definitely miss Robert stack. It's not the same without a host. It's done more of a documentary style, you know, the slow, uh, overhead drone shots, a lot of that stuff. Uh, but it's really, it's pretty good, but it it feels a little too much like every other documentary you see on there, like Mm. true crime stuff.
0: Do they still use the music? They do
5: use the music and they have a nice little nod to Robert Stack at the beginning, but um, there's no, there's no host at all, which I think was a good choice because there's just no way you're, no matter who does it, it's going to be compared to Robert Stack and there's no winning for them. So I thought it was really well done. And I just saw an article uh, tonight that they're finding, they're already getting tons of uh, clues and leads on the cases. So that's to me really important, you know? It's crazy in a world where it used to be on network TV and it got so much accomplished. You know, if you watch it now, there's so many updates where they find people and, fi- you know, closed cases and stuff. But um, now we're living in a world where more people watch Netflix than network TV. So it's, it's sort of fitting that it's on there. But uh, it's, it's pretty good. There was one episode I didn't particularly enjoy, but they're all worth watching. There's only, I think, five or six new ones and they're like 40 minutes each. So you
3: do love your unsolved mysteries. Do I they're, do. They're,
0: do they stick with true crime with this new s- season or uh, or do they get into like supernatural and paranormal? They do get into uh,
5: supernatural paranormal. Oh, sure. The the one I didn't love was about a UFO, but um Oh. Um. I don't know. It was it's still it, even that one I, just out of all of them that was my least favorite doesn't mean it was bad. It was still good, but uh it definitely feels more true crime, but it's it's really good. Um the other thing I've sort of binged was second season of jordan peele's twilight zone they release all the episodes at once instead of doing it weekly like last time so that's i've been alternating between unsolved mysteries and twilight zone which has been sort of fun it's it has just like last first season it's very up and down there's some that i just was bored me to death and some that were really really cool uh very uneven like the first season but it's still worth watching um I've actually another thing I've watched is the chilling adventures of Sabrina on Netflix. I had never seen it before and been playing that in the background while I work on stuff for the film festival. That's a very, uh, teen centric show, but I've enjoyed it for what it is. It's easy to digest and a quick watch. So, and, uh, I think the last thing I watched was my annual viewing of jaws on 4th of July. So that's what I watched. Nice. Sweet. Brian, what did you watch?
4: Uh, I broke my annual tradition of Jaws, went with Jaws 2 instead this year, because I was just (laughs) feeling like doing something different, and Terry's never seen the sequel, so he did that. Um, Otherwise, I will go with Shin Kamen Rider, which uh, Kamen Rider is a Japanese henshin superhero series that started in the 70s and is still going on today in various different formats, and it's about a guy who gets turned into a cyborg soldier that... uh, in the in the olden days, his transformation from human to common Rider would be a there's a sort of a flash of light and you know some zippy special effects and suddenly he'd be wearing a motorcycle helmet that looked like a grasshopper's head and he rode around on a motorcycle. Well, the Shin Common Rider one uh, was made in 1992 and it's sort of like somebody handed David Cronenberg keys to the series. Uh, be, instead of a series, it's a, this one's a movie and. It's like full-blown body horror stuff, where these genetic experiments on making insect-human hybrids have created these bug people soldiers. Um, and so the guy who gets turned into common, either there's ar- arterial blood spray and lots of great gooey pulsating. Cool. Foam, latex, rubber, special effects for the transformations. And uh, the creatures, both the grasshopper monster Common Rider and the big android thing that he fights at the end, uh, were designed by Keita Amemiya, who uh, was the mastermind behind Garo and Zeram. Uh, if you love weird Japanese stuff, you've seen some Keita Amemia, whether you know his name or not. And he makes really cool monsters. So yeah, uh, Shin Common Rider, it's available subtitled on YouTube.
3: Awesome.
5: Was that everything you've watched? Well, no, but it's been a while since I've been here. We don't have <laughs> all night. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure you've got everything that you, you wanted to list, you know, said. I didn't want to interrupt. So I guess that leaves our guest. Tim, what have you watched recently?
2: Uh, well, I just got HBO Max because I just got a smart TV because my dumb TV died of COVID. Uh, oh, Well, I mean, I R I P when when it fall yeah, when a a noble piece of media equipment falls apart, it is terribly sad. I found myself mostly griping that it didn't happen way earlier in the pandemic, so I could have watched more stuff. Because I'm a jerk. Uh but because HBO Max just has so many goddamn movies on it, I was able to watch uh, the 38 Technicolor Adventures of Robin Hood, Casablanca, The Towering Inferno, The Most Dangerous Game, and Justice League Crisis on Two Earths last week alone. Mm. And then uh, nice. on Netflix, I caught De Five Bloods with my classic movie club friends because none of us had seen it because it's brand new. And with, with that, mostly I just thought, oh, this should have been on a theater screen because there's so much gorgeous scenery. But on a computer monitor, it just doesn't look as great. <laughs> but it's Spike Lee. Spike Lee has made some movies. You know, he's he's had some strikes and some gutters. Uh, I would put "Do the Right Thing" on any list of the hundred greatest movies ever made. So even his bad stuff has its moments, and this was not one of the
6: bad ones. Oh, good. Excellent. I
3: think that's it, Mike.
6: Okay, oh,
2: and, and Chernobyl, oh. which uh, oh, hell I, yeah, I, yeah uh, which features uh, one of the, the sort of bit players, one of the Soviet bureaucrats who was the reason that the accident happened, is played by a raspy-voiced Brit named Khan O'Neill. That series is so good. It's amazing.
4: It's so amazing. I think your reference bounced off, Tim. I know. <laughs> I know.
2: They're going to listen to it later and feel bad.
4: Well, they're going to feel bad in about 10 minutes when the credits come on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. So speaking of which we should probably get to it. It's commentary time here on attack of the killer podcast. Again, we are watching, um, tell star the Joe Meek story.
3: You can Uh, find this on YouTube.
0: Yep.
2: Before we hit play. I do also want to say, uh, Today we're recording it, taping it on Monday, July six, and Friday, July ten, will be the fifty eighth anniversary of the launch of Telstar one, the first communication satellite, and the namesake for the song, the play, and the movie.
3: Awesome! Yeah, it's cool that we get to do this around that time. Yeah, That's I, awesome.
2: I, I'm, I'm totally so planned so glad it that way yeah I'm so glad the schedule worked out this way, and I'm you know I did say when i I wanted you guys to watch this I can also recommend a horror movie, but you did say we could go ahead with it so <laughs> yes
1: for you it's on you yes
0: yeah okay so let's uh let's do it. Um, we have it queued up on black right before the very first credit um Charlie I'm at zero zero dot zero zero myself.
3: Aspiration films presents right before that. Right
0: before that. So so if those who are watching at home will count down and we'll count down from th- from three and we'll all hit play at the same time. And it's like we're all watching it together.
3: And this would be the same time as hitting play on YouTube. Yes. So it will be the same. Yeah.
0: Okay, so if everybody's ready. Three,
3: two. One
6: play. It's really happening. <laughs> so, this comes from the audio diary that Joe Meek left
2: on tape. Uh, he said the, that he first got interested in electronics and gear by shouting down the bell of a gramophone. And his voice went on to. So, there we have a, a shooting star and the very first Joe Meek recording onto the run out groove of a gramophone through the power of yelling.
4: A power which he will utilize many times through the course of the movie.
2: (laughs) You don't get to pick your superpower.
3: I kinda enjoy these this this opening credits. Oh look a rapid Raspbi
0: voiced Brit named
2: Con O'Neill. Oh, oh
3: Neal. you're so funny. Oh
0: Neal. now we get the reference.
2: JJ oh, Field went on to go, be okay. in the Captain America
6: first Avenger film.
4: James Corden didn't go on to do anything. Nothing.
6: That guy.
2: It's the squarest England ever. Although at this point, you know, finally the rationing at the end of world war two was over. Uh, there were teenagers that had pocket money to spend that this, this was the start of a sea change in pop culture. Uh, doesn't get a lot of play in contemporary drama. A uh, mad men's about the only thing I can think of that takes place in like the pre beatle sixties. But, uh, Usually when you're seeing a movie set in the sixties, it's about 68 to 73 because the decades are not like discrete chunks. Uh, 1980 is really 1970, 10. I mean, disco was still around. (laughs) So here we are in basically 1950,
6: 11. It's on television. Uh, John Layton, also notable as the other tunnel
2: king in The Great Escape, so when he has dialogue coming up about uh, not wanting people to only think of the bomber jacket when they they think of him, his two roles that anyone knows are Biggles, the World War I pilot, and the Tunnel King, the World War II pilot.
6: Uh, Nick Moran, notable as being one of the gangsters in Lock,
2: Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, wrote this, wrote the play that this was adapted from, and directed the film. And because it was not a great financial success, he's kind of been in movie jail ever since. Yeah, that happens. It, I, I mean, I legit believe it's a slept-on classic. I hope that your listeners will decide to try and watch it, they'll like it, and you know, tell their friends.
0: From the start of this movie it, it just really had a weird feel and tone to it. Almost for me sitcom like just very flat and you know and the dialogue is very back and
3: forth. Mm-hmm. Kinetic to me once I get into the house inside here and start going up the stairs. And I think that speaking hand-held
4: of camera movements do a great job of of making you feel how tightly packed and energetic this studio is at the beginning as as Jeff says in a minute here the place has an energy and a, and a life to it they also you- only had
2: one set so those stairs don't actually go anywhere and apparently it was very difficult for the actors who had to run up or down them to look like they had actually come from somewhere or were going somewhere
3: i love just seeing microphones everywhere
4: Oh yeah. Talking, yeah. About
3: the, talking about the color palette of,
4: of the movie. Um, I, I don't have the, the filmmaking vocabulary that you guys do as far as film stocks and things, but presumably this is a fairly low budget movie and British movies look usually a little different thing. If they're shot with a, a, different number of lines of, of information on like their TV looks different pal and NTSC. So uh-huh. it could have something to do with the conversion to that. Um, and, and yes, the color palette of this movie, like it, it's very drab. It's very British, uh, it, it looks like British food tastes <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, uh, you know, sexual predator and cultural pariah, Kevin Spacey here as major banks, the guy who, who funded things because sometimes Steve Ditko names show up in real life.
0: When I was saying that The movie feels flat. I mean, yes, it feels very stagey to me, like a, like a sitcom or a stage play. And then it wasn't until after I watched it, I realized that this is based on a stage play. Correct.
2: Yes. And Con O'Neill played the part uh, in London on the stage. So I,
0: I kind of thought maybe they were going with that kind of stage aesthetic with the, uh, the look and the feel of the film. I and mean, that that was kind of my assumption. Nice, I gotcha. I've seen other movies like that too like um Noises Off that movie which is also based on a stage play feels like you're almost watching a you're a stage play but you're actually on the stage with them as far as the camera goes which also is ironically a mo- uh, a a play about people running up and down the stairs a lot <laughs> I love this part Oh uh, <laughs> oh yeah Yeah
2: this, this is the electronic equivalent of don't pick a fight with people who buy ink by the barrel. <laughs> 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 to be fair, his neighbors probably didn't like hearing oh. the recording and mixing process. Oh, to God. be unfair, Joe Meek was the best record producer that ever lived, and they could just deal. <laughs> they didn't know. Uh, Actually, New Music Express did a countdown of the top 100 music producers. And, you know, our man Joe, uh, they listed as number one. Presumably, they know what they're talking about.
0: That's really cool, because the thing I I like about Joe, this movie, and his story is is just how DIY it all feels. Oh, yeah. He just decided he wanted to do this and, like, you know, converted this apartment building into a recording studio. You have well, microphones in the bathroom and the closet is the, uh, soundstage and,
4: and before well, there yeah. were suites of digital fuckery that you could, put the whammy on anything you wanted to and make it sound anyway, sitting in a, in a bedroom with a laptop and one person doing everything. He had to figure out how to do it all himself with actual things laying around the house. He is the MacGyver of music producing.
2: And he had to do it real time using the production console as another instrument. Uh, the, up yep. ca- oh, James Corden. Well, that's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots and lots of different, uh, posters for things. And the dialogue here is referring to uh, Joe Meek getting songwriting advice from Buddy Holly from beyond the grave via Ouija board.
0: Uh, For folks watching at home and listening at home that want to know your horror connections. That's one of three in this movie. Oh,
2: there, there are. Well, for that matter, the flashbacks that we're getting at the beginning where he's burning all of his personal papers in a dustbin. I, that is the 3rd of February 1967, eight years to the day of the plane crash that claimed the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper.
3: Wow. To the day.
2: To the day. Uh, additionally, on February 3rd, that is when Phil Spector shot Lana Clarkson. If you are a music producer and it's February 3rd, I recommend you hide under the bed dressed as somebody
3: else. Yeah. It's werewolf rules at that point. <laughs> Chain to the bed. Chain to
2: Well I mean whatever whatever yeah. turns you on, man, I don't want to kink shame. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Uh, he tended to put the the
2: vocalists in the, uh, the toilet because the tile there had better echo and better acoustics.
3: Techniques we still use today. Well, it's oh, yeah, yeah, it's That's funny you say
0: that because um, that that was a uh, running Weird Al joke for years when he recorded another one. Another one rides the bus, which was recorded in the bathroom on his college campus, and mm-hmm. he would always talk about how he would search college, camp- college campuses all over for just the right bathroom with the proper acoustic tiles to for the for the sound the right which reverb. was obviously a joke but like man there just must be some validity
3: to it
2: oh yeah i mean well, that's why you sing in the shower
3: yeah a lot of his uh, not what I do in a shower. equipment is to is built for like reverbs and delays and things long before there were Pedals for them and
2: oh yeah. Uh, by try some recreate accounts, what
3: you'd naturally get in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. By
2: some accounts, he was the first producer to separately mic different instruments. Yeah. And Which was so, one of the many, many reasons that every studio in London fired him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to know also too, like how accurate a few of these moments that we get where <laughs> his like grassroots over the top. Promotion gimmicks like this one here. Uh, he did that is! Because I, so I love that. Type send of stuff. them
2: out to rob the record store of their own single. Uh, he, That's Screaming awesome. Lord Sutch, <laughs> used to get arrested a lot because he was very, very tangentially collected connected to english nobility he always got let go so he was up for anything he would like hide in a tree and scream at people to try and sell (laughs) records and eventually someone would go haul him out of the tree and down to the police station and they'd find out that they couldn't keep him and you know a couple weeks later he'd be up in another tree screaming at people trying to sell records
0: and i love that kind of stuff that promotion stuff is awesome and fun and
2: nothing wrong with a little bit of ballyhoo exactly
0: it's my philosophy when we go to film festivals. Oh yeah,
2: hide in a tree and scream at people. Well,
0: Maybe. just the uh, <laughs> being Does loud and obnoxious and doing everything everything that no one else is doing to
3: promote your shit. Yeah, when we had yeah, a roller we- derby movie, we had we brought in a bunch of roller derby girls that skated down to the front, helped introduce the film. Oh, sweet. Then that kind of stuff is
4: awesome. We, we talked about that before we did our William Castle episode a while back, too. You know, yeah, we talk yeah. about how all the time, how much we all miss uh, that kind of.
3: The theatrics. Of exactly. Selling.
0: Exactly. I'm glad you brought up William Castle. That's a perfect example.
5: Are you guys going to release Nats into the theater when you show the <laughs> Nats nat <chatter? laughs> show? Uh, we talked about it. i got to break in here a sec.
2: The cab driver here is the real Clem Cattini, the real drummer on Telstar.
5: Yeah, I saw that. The uh, original musicians had cameos in this, which is cool.
2: Yeah, uh, the surviving ones at any rate. Uh, and his, uh, later on, there's a point where he gets a telegram backstage during a, a big montage when they finally play Telstar. And that is his student assistant, Patrick Pink, 35
3: years on. Patrick, the saddest story of all of them, probably.
5: Yeah. He reminds me of a mixture of Brandon Fraser and Christopher Walken yeah. in, the, in, ah. the dead, in the dead zone.
6: Uh, the guy playing Jeff Goddard or the guy playing Joe Meek?
2: Jeff. Uh,
5: yeah,
6: the, the guy with the scarf is Jeff Goddard.
2: Ah, and here there was... Uh, he did a, some sort of bibliomancy predictive thing. Tried to warn Buddy Holly of his death and got the year wrong. He told him, beware of February 3rd. But uh, got Very 58 easy. instead of 59. No idea if that a- ever actually really happened. But at one point uh, near, nearer to the end of his life... Joe Meek was walking around Highgate Cemetery with a, uh, a tape recorder and th- found a cat that he thought was speaking with a human voice. <laughs> he had been taking a lot of diet pills at that point. And by diet pills, we mean
6: amphetamines. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here it is about, I, I don't want people to just see the bomber jacket.
2: Then quit
3: wearing it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hey, if you've got the great <laughs> escape on your resume, you are oh, doing yeah. fine. Even if you're the Would one not that's not
1: Charles
6: on. Bronson and nobody remembers. <laughs> the power of yelling.
2: Yeah,
0: nobody yells like Which that he guy. he does do a lot.
2: Oh guys. my God.
6: <laughs> <laughs> The
2: the drinking game for this movie is every time someone offers Joe a cup of tea in an attempt to get him to calm the fuck down.
0: (laughs) Like this whole first half here where it's just all, all of this stuff is probably my favorite stuff of the movie is because I, I'm a big fan of like high energy back and forth dialogue like this, that, Oh man, you know, and with the accents and some of the uh, vocabulary of the, of the era, it's a little hard to follow but it's still, there's such great funny moments, too, like when he just tells him to fuck off and stuff like that.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah.
4: Talking yeah, about uh, other Ouija boards and supernatural connections, that guitar player is Richie Blackmore, who yeah, I totally... purple, who went on to form Blackmore's knight and now lives in a castle in England performing black magic rituals. People who've worked with him have said he's a real spooky dude.
6: Oh, hold on. <laughs> I love this line. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I also yeah. love the the sight gag where
4: he's
2: got to bring the mic down about a foot and a half so oh, Johnny yeah. it. Yes,
4: he should have just left it up and done it Lemmy style. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I had you no know, idea it was Richie Blackmore. That's so cool. If Jason, uh, until the credits,
0: yeah. I will give you five dollars next time you're recording somebody for. To do the microphone. To do to do, do, do that line.
3: Put it up too. High.
0: Oh. No, do that line of like uh, it's a microphone. That's what they that's do. What they do. <laughs> <laughs> Deal.
2: I can kick in five. <laughs> <laughs> and and here's where they try to point out that the things that Joe is doing are bringing all of these thing all of these influences together. Yeah. And this is where allegedly at a seance, uh, Buddy, Holly, uh, Buddy Holly told him, see you in the charts. And I have been waiting 20 years for there to be a Ouija board scene in a movie at B-Fest so that I can yell that out and ask if it means anything to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got to say, the the voice, the woman singing in that chorus sounds like a banshee. There there really isn't anything like this song even now but in 1961 that just had to be like a grenade going off <laughs> Just and like you, you put you're, you're hearing you know plinkity plinkety, plinkity plinkety, trad jazz and then this
4: I love it Jason yeah, I has love a gun it. to my head this is my favorite Joe Meek track
0: That's possible Also um, his
2: first number one
0: as a, as a person that makes music, I know when I watch movies about f- filmmaking, especially on a low budget level, um, like like an Ed Wood or, um, probably one of my favorites of that, of, of this example would be maybe Bowfinger or they're just doing this DIY, no budget <laughs> nonsense, hilarious filmmaking. But those scenes where he's just, he's in that room with the just twisting knobs and doing oh. things. Does that just like pump you up as oh, a absolutely. music maker you know, she, you yeah. get behind the, uh. The soundboard,
3: yeah, because I mean, yeah, back in the day when I started recording on four tracks, it's like this as far as like you had to ride the faders. It was it was one you had to do it real time. That's
0: awesome. That just sounds so much fun. It was
3: exciting for sure. You had to fucking pay attention. (laughs) Unlike now, you just record it. Oh, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. I'll fix it later. Fix it in post. That's right. Yep.
6: And the power of yelling again. (laughs) So the keyboard he's uh, uh, busting out here was battery powered and could not play chords.
4: This bit, this line. That's how you know he's a fucking genius. That's what I was talking about, the MacGyver of music producing, like just sticking these weird little household things in his equipment that nobody ever would have thought of, but just the right combination of genius and insanity.
2: Uh yeah, and there's a sliding scale on that, and you want to be real careful. Uh he yeah. did a cover of Love is Strange, where one of the percussion parts is a metal spoon banging an empty milk bottle. And, you know, it doesn't
6: sound like anything else.
3: Oh, I, and I there's a scene coming up where they're dropping shit in the toilet, and I've oh, spent yeah, many the hours song, yeah. with a microphone in a toilet. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> on some previous recordings, I my uh, hobbies are stupid too. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did a recording a band for band stuff. It was awesome. What felt right at home. Uh, you guys, you, you're all Spinal Tap fans too. The
2: uh, at the beginning of rock and roll creation, it's the sound effect is the backward uh, toilet flush being played backwards. I'm pretty sure that was a Joe Meek joke in 1982. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure only the Spinal Tap guys knew about that at that point.
0: Oh, I would I would totally assume, yes. Yeah.
2: I mean, you guys have electronic beepy noises at the beginning of your own theme song. It's amazing, and I like
3: it. Oh, yeah, there's theremin on there.
0: Well, and, yeah, I mean, that... And I guess if you want, to, again, to make connections to horror um there's just, just just a lot of that aesthetic in the music you know with the oh yeah you know, like you said the girl that sings like a banshee you know or oh, just yeah. all the all the reverb and echoes and it's very ghost-like in a lot of ways and, and i totally dig the music from this era especially this kind of stuff
2: uh there is a fantastic two disc compilation called Grooving with the Grim Reaper that's like all these teenage death songs and car crashes and just all that kind of thing Uh, and Johnny Remember Me is on it because it fucking should be but (laughs) if if you get a chance Grooving with the Grim Reaper if you like creepy music of the pre-Beatles 60s get that in your life writing it down (laughs) I think I sent Brian a copy and then I think I bought another copy so that your, your loan has been upgraded to gift.
4: Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, it it is great. I've, that is a really, really good disc, or it's two discs actually. Yeah,
2: it is. One of them is great. One of them is merely excellent. (laughs) Uh, but it's all, uh, you know, my, my own, you know, pop culture theory about, car crash songs is twofold. One is when you're 15, all of your emotions are at super nuclear operatic fever pitch anyway. So you can't just have a song about, yeah, we broke up and it turns out we're not going to see each other anymore. It has to turn into, we're not seeing each other anymore beyond the grave. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but
2: the other thing is that seatbelts were not mandatory in cars until the late 60s or early 70s. So like if you were a high school student in the 50s or or early 60s, you you probably knew or knew of people who had cars and people who just had rotten luck or a tire blowout and just got turned into hamburger on highway 9. Uh so it was something that was at least there in the atmosphere. Uh, you know, if, if you have car culture, you have car accidents and not everybody walks away from all of them. Uh, if I remember right, there's a Meek produced answer track to tell Laura, I love her called tell Johnny, I miss him where it's, uh, the, the widow, see, you know, in tell Laura, I love her. It's a guy who dies in a stock car race accident, trying to win the money to buy a wedding ring for his girl. And the answer song is the girl saying, you know, you didn't need to do that. I loved you anyway. Uh-huh which is like super extra tragic (laughs) here. We have the ground station of at Andover, Maine in the United States. That right there is Telstar one. Uh, the, the cooperation between, uh, NASA and AT&T led to shrinking the world down and getting a message from the U S to Europe in eight seconds. The satellite never fell out of orbit. It's broken. It's up there. It's silent in the cold, eternal night, but it's never fallen.
4: That would explain why AT&T's service is so shitty now. They're still using it <laughs> to bounce their service.
6: <laughs> well, would not you?
3: Yeah, that satellite started it all, man. It really did. It-
6: it
2: was the st- I mean, the reason that we are able to record this nice. episode of your podcast is because of Telstar. So, an early happy Telstar Day to everybody! Right. Happy Telstar Day! Thank you. I mean, it'll be late by the time this is done, but right now we're in the past, yelling at the future. Uh, Meek was tone deaf. There is uh, look for a track called Telstar Rough Demo it is absolutely unlistenable but it's basically <laughs> that he played he played a backing track from another song and then tried to sort of scream-sing oh, yeah. what he wanted
6: it to be <laughs>
3: <laughs> maybe this knob will fix it yes. nope <laughs> yeah cuz reverb helps singers
6: <laughs> well it's not making it worse
3: No.
2: (laughs) Look, when inspiration strikes, it ain't pretty.
6: Yeah. And of course, you know, now turn this into the song I wanted it to be.
4: Now here's another little horror connection for you that um involving the song Telstar. There are two songs. That Anton Xander LeVay claimed to have the greatest satanic occult power because of their lasting cultural impact, even though they're kind of in the background now and uh, for all sorts of dippy reasons that LeVay probably just made up on the spot. But one of the songs was Telstar. The other, Yes, We Have No Bananas.
1: <laughs>
2: and... To do another horror connection, H.P. Lovecraft once snuck into a church to play Yes, We Have No Bananas on the organ.
4: Yeah, he loved that song. <laughs> he really, really did.
0: I knew bananas were evil.
2: <sighs> well, that's why we have none.
4: So the next time you find yourself humming Yes, We Have No Bananas, just know that you could accidentally summon Nyarlathotep or a Shogoth or something.
0: Accidentally? That, 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 That's tempting for a short (laughs) film.
3: That would be hilarious. Yes, you two need
2: to write that. Have the actual narrative and then jump cut like a Coen Brothers (laughs) smash cut to somewhere else where a music nerd
6: explains the whole thing and then back to the narrative.
3: (laughs) I'll tell you what, they did a hell of a job with um, set design and wardrobe. It's it's just outstanding. Oh indeed. I mean you fucking you lose yourself in it really was then. A, yeah,
2: I, I when they were making the movie, there was like a, a behind the scenes like promo photo of Con O'Neill twiddling the knobs in the, the production room. And I, I like, you know, copy, paste, emailed it to a friend, and he was like, That's great, but what's from the movie? Like he thought it was a real photo
1: for
3: <laughs> too. Yeah, these these microphones, these guitars, these, yeah, it's it's the eyeglasses, the great. brill cream. <laughs> well,
2: and and it was wallpaper. I believe the budget was under under two million.
0: Uh it's because it doesn't go far from this location. There's not a ton that's right, like 75% really is in this studio area, which is great. Don't get me wrong. You know I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love movies that, you know, try to stay in one just one location for the entire film.
2: Yeah. Uh you know, true fact, uh went. Major Banks owned a plastics factory and he got into pressing records just as a way to diversify his holdings. When Johnny Remember me hit number one, they c- literally physically could not keep up with demand. They sold every single copy and had people wanting more. Nice uh also true fact occasionally, in order to manipulate chart recordings in the u k uh, producers and, and studio heads would like pay teddy boys to go out and buy you know a hundred, a 1, thousand, however many copies of something just to get it on the charts and other producers would hire other Teddy boys to kick the crap out of those guys, take their money and double up the order on the thing they were buying.
0: Man. The music industry sounds like so much fun back then. Oh
2: man. I mean, this, this really is a destination. If I had a time machine, it's just, I know which day I have to get there before. (laughs) Or swipe the gun, keep him alive. uh, Have Joe Meek producing Bowie. Queen and Devo in the eighties and uh terribly sorry about the rest of the timeline. Everybody I got mine,
3: <laughs> but don't you feel like, I mean, we'll get to the end of this movie, but like with what you said, don't you feel like, I mean, he was two weeks away and like, but don't you feel like he was going to be there anyway? Like he was, I, slipping, I have a like-
2: feeling that, that there's so many things that could have gone differently and could have worked out uh you know if he'd waited another if he'd survived another five years rockabilly would have come back if he'd survived another 15 it would have been disco and glam and i think honestly he would have done all right with those it's that he was the world's worst businessman and had only one thing that he was good at
0: yeah see and that's where i think if if he had gotten that money, it, things probably would have still turned out the same. I thought he's it was a bad businessman. Yeah, I thought it was too well, late. It
3: just felt like his mental health was
0: just yeah, gone. There, and going.
2: It's a tragedy.
0: I mean, yeah, it, it's for real. What do you think was the downfall? Like just him being his own worst enemy?
2: Uh, I think there were internal? a lot of people lining up to be his worst enemy, but I think Joe was at the head of the queue. Sure. Uh, what it, it it's, it's. You know, 20 things landing on him at the same time. The, the fact that the Telstar royalties were frozen for half a decade meant that he couldn't ever capitalize on a 5 million copy selling hit. Uh, but he, he was, you know, viciously belligerent about anybody that told him to do anything the way he didn't want to do it. He was, he, he was a dinosaur. His tastes were extremely out of step with the psychedelic sixties. They would have been extremely out of step with the seventies. But if he'd stuck around long enough for the nostalgia stuff to kick in again in the, you know, mid, late seventies, I think he could have had a comeback. And I think it might've even been one of those. Don't call it a comeback. I never went anywhere type things.
3: Yeah. Between rockabilly Uh, and surf. Like Rockabilly,
2: surf, girl groups. Uh, yeah. I mean, the uh, Pearl Jam had a, like a year-long charting hit with uh, Last Kiss. I mean, oh, yeah. there, there is no telling what could happen. But, I mean, on the other hand, he's the kind of person, and by the way, it would have been oh. the Quarrymen at this oh. point, not the Beatles, but he was one of I mean, many, many, many people who turned the, the Quarrymen slash Beatles down. I think they got hired the... Forty third time they tried to get a record deal. Wow. Yes, he also turned them down. He also threw Rod Stewart out of the studio. Uh, something like eight or ten years before Stewart was was a big famous dude, which means he got you know a decades head start on people who did not care for Rod Stewart.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, you're talking about his 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 taste, and he was so stuck on one thing, you know. Like, turning down the Beatles because he thought Mersey beat was a fad. He, he I think it, had he lived, had his mental health stabilized somehow, had he made it to the disco era, it would have been like that old silent film clip of the two trains colliding. There was just no way
1: <laughs>
2: he would have
4: been able to deal with that kind of music. And then but when, if digital had all the
2: yeah.
4: when digital recording came along, yeah, it'd just be like the, Bruce Banner in the Avengers. Like, that's my secret. I'm always angry and punches the space whale. Like, he would have (laughs) just thrown the computer out the window and gone back to fiddling with his faders.
2: But there are studios. Uh, I think one of them is Toe Rag Studios somewhere in the London area. Like, they only use an old soundboard vacuum tubes. Uh, Yeah, I can see
3: him getting into a touch of the same stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I I mean, he was using a in
2: 62, so...
4: Maybe he would have been more open to adopting that type of technology than I give him credit for, I guess. But, but he would have about,
2: recorded it on tape instead of digital.
4: Yeah. His, his trajectory reminds me, this This isn't the first time that Tim has convinced somebody who normally deals with horror stuff to watch this movie. I'd known something <laughs> about Meek's music for a while. But back in the day when I was doing my Cinemasochist Apocalypse uh, blog, Tim convinced me to review this movie for that which is how I saw it for the very first time years and years ago. And uh, the, the the immediate connection I made, other than the Anton LaVey thing, was that Joe Meek is the Andy Milligan of rock and roll. <laughs> yes. his, his career has a very similar trajectory, except Andy Milligan never had any great successes, but he had some success on The Grindhouse. And I mean, even down to his weird CD personal life stuff that we'll see coming up a little bit more later here. And and ending in tragedy. Me, or, uh, Milligan didn't kill himself, but you know, he died penniless, uh, living in an abandoned movie theater with with all of his movies in film, not even in cans. Some of it just scattered around the uh, around on the floor, not being preserved. So, and they were both very scary, dangerous <laughs> individuals. If you made them angry. <laughs>
5: Yeah, this is a first time watch, but I knew a little bit about Joe Meek, but the parallels between him and my favorite producer and songwriter, Brian Wilson, are just pretty crazy.
2: Oh, just a touch. Uh, This upcoming montage, by the way, uh, brought me to literal water fell out of my face tears the first time I saw it, because it's showing what's going on in the world, what's going on with Meek personally, and what's going on with him professionally uh, at all at the same time. And yet also bringing in like JFK saying that his press conference conference is being relayed by Telstar. Like it, it shows you an actual just frozen second of time. And for that frozen second, Joe Meek was on top of the fucking world. And unfortunately, once you're on top of the world, there's only one direction
6: you can go. Yeah.
2: I got to say his hair is so much better in this movie than it is in Chernobyl. He has what I can only call a Soviet perm in Chernobyl.
6: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, you know, 24 years ago or so, I was listening
2: to uh, a CD that I bought. that was just Rhino records, rock instrumental classics, volume two, the sixties. And Madison time was on, which was like this dance record telling everybody what steps to do. And I finally got that joke in Rocky horror about yeah, any of you guys know how to Madison.
0: <laughs> nice.
2: And then track 12 played. And honestly, my life has not been the same ever since then. And I do love that there's in this, they're depicting Jeff Goddard as a co-writer. He wasn't just man playing keyboard the way the shouty producer told him to he was a a contributor to this uh in an in an interview in 2012 on the 50th anniversary of the single they talked to some of the band members and they said they were hoping no one would ever find out they played on it because they thought it was going to be a fucking debacle and instead five million copies the opening shot of the British invasion and the only human being who thought this was going to be a thing was Joe Meek. Yeah. I, I wouldn't kill, but I definitely maim to have been an extra in this scene, except I don't think they could film if somebody keeps bursting into tears and flames <laughs> alternately. <laughs> And Heinz Bert,
6: possibly the single worst bass player in the history of recorded music. And then showing, you know, we show that, then we show people watching that, and then we show Joe getting
2: ready to go out for the Ivor Novello Awards for innovation in music production.
6: Dude's the first ballot, you know, Hall of Fame entry for music production. I genuinely believe that. And Billy Fury there, I believe, whose backing band has
2: a $2 million in the UK selling single when his management said, Joe, fuck off, you, you are not good enough for this. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I got to say, speaking as a, a pushed around nerd on my own, and Meek certainly was that in a lot of points in his life, uh, there is nothing more satisfying than being able to look at somebody who was giving you static for quite some time, smiling and telling them to eat shit. (laughs) I'm 99% sure this is, uh, Oh God, I can't remember the actor's name, Kevin Spacey as the DJ, because they just didn't have money to get another guy in for the voiceover.
4: Yeah. And and he's the most expensive person in the cast to do it. (laughs) Yes.
2: And here's Patrick pink handing over the telegram. Oh, nice. When, when this happened, the Beatles and Brian Epstein were like,
6: so you can make money in the States, can you? So cool. Indeed. And this is what everything else sounded like on the radio at that point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what I'd like to do is a three and a half minute instrumental, no words, crazy outer space sound effects and a synthesizer that people can't even pronounce. <laughs> Sounds great. Go for it. I mean,
4: Just got a were hook. there any songs before that that prominently used a synthesizer?
2: Uh, there was one called Red Monkey. I can't remember the artist's name, but that was the first pop song to use a clavialine. I mean, you get, you know, there's theremin and stuff. There's some electronic music uh, where they, uh, I think it was called Musique Concrete in France, where, but it was like avant-garde composers. Nobody trying to sell stuff to teenagers was like, so we have this keyboard that can play one note at a time and we're not going to sing. <laughs>
4: Right. It was the BBC Radiophonic Workshop up until that point doing, you know. Oh, yeah. uh, Delia Derbyshire and uh, Don Harper were a couple of big pioneers of electronic music. But again, like I said, it was incidental music on TV shows and stuff. It wasn't a, a bajillion selling single on the radio that still sells copies today.
2: Yeah, I know. I buy one every year just to keep it in, you know, keep it practice.
4: (laughs) I mean, I have a Don Harper album on vinyl, but not everyone does. Yeah.
2: Uh, Actually, I wound up uh, last time I was out in Pennsylvania at that drive-in that I go to for They They just had a bunch of CDs at half price books. And one of them was just an electronic music compilation of like the 20s through the 40s. And it turns out uh, there was a guy named John Robinson Pierce who made electronic music at that point. And John Robinson Pierce was also the AT&T uh, project head for the Telstar satellite. Huh. Very cool. There are no coincidences. There are only the appearance of coincidences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I may have yelled, holy fuck, when I saw <laughs> what, who was on that disc. I, you know, I may have, and then I may have had to say, sorry, it turns (laughs) out John Robinson Pierce is on this CD. Like that explained anything.
4: And then you were banned from half price books for life.
2: No, they, uh, come on. I'm not the only loud nerd to have ever walked into the Pennsylvania half price books. Really funny. I was staying at a different hotel than everybody uh, one year because it was just that much cheaper. And I was driving to meet everybody in Monroeville. Uh, Telstar came on the PA at that half oh. price books. And my friend, Sean, uh, the, the other, you know, fiasco brother turned to the door to see if I had just walked in. And unfortunately I had not, I blew my cue by about 20 minutes, but that, <laughs> that's how much my friends identify me with. This is like, they hear the song and they're like, Oh, Tim must be here.
0: So there was another um, good connection to horror just a second ago with uh, seeing Screaming Lord, Lord Such, Such. Oh, who is yeah. my favorite artist that Joe Meeks pro- Joe Meek produced.
2: Yeah. So uh, is Jack the Ripper your favorite track, or do you have a another? Because uh, he did a ton of of really odd stuff.
0: I, yeah. I like Jack the Ripper a lot. I also probably my second favorite would be All All Black and Hairy. Very cool. I like that song a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I think All so Black and Harry is right? even on one of our halloween Palooza palooza um, yeah. CDs we play so. throughout the day. Oh, sweet. Yeah.
4: Now, really? about, I said before, Johnny, your memory is probably my single favorite track, but if you're just talking about artist, fucking obviously it's Streaming Lord oh, Sucks. Yeah. The original yeah. horror rock guy. Yeah. Right? He created yeah. Corpse Paint 20 years before black metal was a thing.
0: Uh, before Coop, Alice Cooper, before. Oh, yeah. Kiss but significantly any of that stuff.
2: After Screaming Jay Hawkins, but that's why he's screaming Lord Such. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a t- it's a tip of the blood-spattered top hat to the other <laughs> no, R right.
4: D guy. I said he created corpse paint, not horror rock.
2: <laughs> right, right. I'm you know, I just I gotta give props to Screamin' Jay also as well. Oh yeah. And this uh what's the lead go, yeah. leader of the darkness? What's his name? What's that? What, uh, what's the name of the lead singer of the darkness?
4: Oh, I have no idea. I can't stand that band.
2: <laughs> oh, well, then you don't like his cameo here either. Is like Jay
6: Hawkins or something. Uh, maybe. Guess who didn't do research? Or is that Carl Barat? I can't
2: remember, but there's, there's lots of like contemporary, you know, 2008 rock guys who are like, hey, I could be in the Joe Meek movie for 30 seconds and then were. And he did drive uh he did drive a rolls with a stuffed alligator and loudspeakers on the roof.
3: Clearly Mike's favorite. <laughs> oh. <laughs> By far. <laughs> <laughs>
0: love this guy. I love Screaming Lord Such. Uh unsuccessfully
2: ran for Parliament, what, 34 times? But some <laughs> of some of the things he ran on eventually became official government policy it's just that when he was running under the monster raving bloody loony party no one listened to him
0: after i watched this i had to go through youtube and try to find some some footage it was a really cool jack the ripper live performance i where think,
4: it, i'm pretty sure it's footage of this actual concert like this oh, promo well, isn't that, well, it well, looks, well, it looks very much the same like they recreated yeah. this from that That's footage cool. i would i would guess i don't I don't know for sure, I guess, but it looks awful similar, even well, down he, to his weird interactions with the crowd.
0: Yeah, The two, well, the two musicians he was are on stage by themselves saying Jack the," uh, singing Jack the Ripper in the mic, and you can hear you can hear such, but you can't see him, and he's like at the back of the crowd, and he's coming out of the darkness in the crowd, but my favorite part is just seeing these like very confused teenage girls who could see him at the back <laughs> of the crowd, but the camera can't yet, and just like terrified nervously terrified <laughs> at what's coming towards them from the darkness it's so awesome you need to check out this this clip
2: i i you know for the show notes please put a link to that if you find it
0: yes totally so so Hines the idea was a
2: double threat he couldn't sing and he couldn't play and of course he was named heinz so they're throwing heinz baked beans at him Honestly, I'm usually not in favor of heckling. And if, if you tried to heckle a Joe Meek act in my presence, I would turn green and go smash your car in the parking lot into a cube. And then you would get a ticket and have to move your cube. But you know, the rockabilly fans in the UK, the Teddy boys were actually scary dudes. Chances are, you know, you piss those guys off. You're getting a hit with a a motorcycle chain or something at best, And shanked at worst.
4: And you'd think if they were that scary, they would have done something about getting a better nickname than the Teddy Boys.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was wartime rationing. They still didn't have any good nicknames.
0: (laughs) Maybe they went by that so somebody would make fun of them so they could start a fight with them.
2: Yeah. and, And honestly, I love Teddy Boy fashion. Uh, I would love to get some of those big, you know, Edwardian boxy coats and the, the Mississippi blues man tie. It's a look that very few people can carry off. And I know I couldn't, but I would do it
6: anyway. Uh, Brian I has proof of this.
4: <laughs> yes. Before we move too far past that, I just want to say how much would you pay to go back in time and see a double bill concert of screaming Lord such. And, um, Oh God. No, I just blanked on his name as I was going to say it a minute ago and I complete Rocky Erickson. There we go.
2: Oh my God. Yeah. That, that <laughs> would be about the third or fourth time machine stop. There was a meek tribute concert in 91 with the, the tornadoes, the honeycombs, screaming Lord, such uh John Layton, like everybody that had a chart hit with him did a, wow. like a, a remembrance concert in 91. And yeah, that's stop number one. Stop number two is the Ramones Bicentennial Concert in London, July 4, 1976, where like every punk band that was going to happen in the next year was also in the audience. And then the third stop, because I gotta be me, is that Rick Wakeman, the keyboardist of Yes, did a prog rock musical of The Legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table on ice. It ran for <laughs> two performances... Before closing, oh. I legit believe the second show, the entire audience is morbidly curious time travelers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the By the way, the super blonde, super pale platinum dye job here is because Joe Meeks saw Village of the Damned and thought it was extremely striking. So he wanted Heinz to look like A creepy alien hybrid child up there
0: on stage. There there you go, folks. There's another horror movie reference for you. All right. AKA
2: Draco and the Malfoys.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Another horror movie reference. James Corden was in Cats, and that's pretty horrifying. Release the butthole cut, you cowards.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No
4: shit. (laughs) He was also on Doctor Who, Jason.
3: Well, I knew that was going to happen right. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and he's in I mean, I already talked
4: talk. about the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and D Delia Derbyshire. They did That was the Doctor Who theme music.
6: I was going to say...
2: And,
1: you
6: know, speaking
2: talking
1: of music,
6: about. they still play 50 years later. Yeah. And this is the sort of thing, like, you need
2: stage presence. You have to practice. You have to know what you're going to look like.
6: That's the, the true. thing.
2: And here's where they're kind of pinching stuff from Roy Orbison. That was the blue rondos with Little Baby, but very obviously trying to take that kind of tone. Like there's there, my favorite joke about Hollywood is everyone wants to be the second one to do something original.
4: And that's and the blue rondos thing. presumably took their name from wanting to be a bunch of depressed Rondo Hattons, so there's another horror thing for you.
2: It could very well be. They didn't need <laughs> special know. makeup to rock.
4: rock. I'm just grasping at straws at this point. <laughs> I'll take it.
2: Gene Vincent. I think that's Carl Barat as Gene Vincent. Uh, Gene Vincent being the crippled master of rock and roll. He almost lost a leg in a motorcycle accident and uh, could barely walk. Spent a lot of time on painkillers and booze. Uh, did a track with me called Temptation Baby. That's one of my you know top 10 or top 15 tracks uh, that he ever produced and here of course is the i am a first time director and here is a shot of a tailpipe before the gay sex
4: <laughs> uh, i was gonna say that is a little on the nose isn't it
2: <laughs> uh it's uh, it's not really on the nose that's the problem <laughs>
6: <laughs> uh, okay I wanted to say
3: earlier with uh, the Lord Such, one of my favorite things about him, at least depicted in this movie, is that like Meek didn't seem to see him other than just like another guy. You know, like Oh yeah. Such is clearly a, a freaking weirdo maniac. But like to to Meek, he was just, you know, just another dude. And that's that's cool. I like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, when your when your background weirdness is that high, like your your personal (laughs) chaos field is that big, then
3: the search isn't going to phase you too much. Yeah.
2: No, no, they were just they were kindred spirits. They loved monster movies and freaking
6: people out and being weird. Yeah. (laughs) Stay off the amphetamines, kids. Yes. Oh, well, prank versus prank. Got him every <laughs> time.
3: <laughs> I'm with you, Tad. What? What if Meek c- and Brian Wilson got in a room together?
5: It uh, would it- probably just catch on fire because they both have <laughs> so many <Yeah>. mental issues. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. The, the carpet will walk
2: out world. on its own and be afraid of people. It just Oh, and here's Temptation Baby being played. So there we go. Uh, there is a movie called Live It Up. Uh, it's a completely innocuous film about uh, a kid's trying to get a record deal in, in the UK in the pre Beatle sixties, and all of the music therein is Joe Meek produced. Cool. I, I sponsored it at B-Fest 2010 or thereabouts, and uh, nobody cared, and that's cool. <laughs> but the truly important thing is that you know I made them watch it, and where else were they going to see it?
3: It's true. How many times have you sponsored this one?
2: Uh, I have not. It's not a B movie, or at least I'm it's not. not the one. It's not one that would work there. But I did sponsor Jim Cada three different times well, and Roadhouse. Roadhouse once,
6: (laughs) Drat the Man. And this is him kicking Tom Jones out without giving him an
2: audition, which uh, did not happen. There are a couple Tom Jones tracks that Meek produced, but you know, long before he got famous and, and even longer before he tried to cover uh, burning down the house with notably limited success.
0: (laughs) How long did, how long did he record artists? Like, uh,
2: Well, he was active 58 to 67, but it was early 67 when he killed himself. So, uh, you know, a little under a decade.
0: I'm just on his Wikipedia right now and the freaking list of people that he's recorded. It's, it's amazing.
2: Just a little bit so of the Roger Corman, you know,
0: <laughs> talent scout. Which is the shit that I love, you know, I just, oh, I yeah. love like artists that constantly have to be producing content. And that is totally it's totally meek all the way. Oh yeah. And and here are the the naughty boys called into
2: the principal's office. <laughs> uh when they go to court by the way, uh if I remember right, the judge is played by John
6: Layton, the uh, the Johnny Remember Me singer and the other tunnel king from The Great Escape. But is he
3: wearing the jacket in the scene?
6: Well, he's wearing robes. I I prefer to believe that
2: the jacket is.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
6: (laughs) Because honestly, how could you tell? Right? Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, nuts. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think he's having a ball.
3: (laughs) 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 Uh, You really crushed that scene, though.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I wonder who the key grip was.
6: (laughs) (laughs) I heard he's a little testy. (laughs)
0: That's where we're at, folks. Yeah. This commentary yeah. track episode. <laughs> how many? How many nut puns can we do? One more mistake and you'll be sacked.
1: That's
0: <laughs> Ted, do you have one? Come on, Ted. <laughs> Finish this no. off. No.
1: Ew. <laughs> <It's just> so-
2: <laughs> well, there's only so much Joe Meek
6: trivia to go through, and you know, every so often somebody's going to take a groin shot. and uh, yet another death disc, uh, Eddie
2: Cochran of summertime blues fame.
0: Yeah. I'm going to continue with puns here for a while. <laughs> so Heinz seems to be playing a little behind the rest of the band. He needs to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Oh.
6: I'm summertime away. blue.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Summertime Try Blues, of teams. course, was covered to rousing success by Guitar Wolf on their album Jet Generation, stars of the uh, psychedelic horror movies Sore Losers and Wild Zero. And also the loudest band on the planet. <laughs> Literally, you, one, you one of that? their CDs came with a warning sticker saying that if you played it at normal volume, it would break your stereo. And they weren't kidding.
2: <laughs> wow.
4: When Jet Generation went to the uh, the production company for the final master before it was pressed, the, the producers thought it was a joke because they had recorded levels of noise they didn't think possible with the current stereo recording equipment at <laughs> the time.
2: Wow. Joe Meek, you said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here, it, uh, Jean Ledrut wrote a piece of film score for a French film about the Battle of Austerlitz uh, the movie had never been released in the UK. Uh, there, honestly, there is not a chance that Meek ever really saw it. But, uh, you know, frivolous lawsuits are frivolous lawsuits. This is what froze the royalties for Telstar. And, you know, as we all know from our reading, the, uh, the lawsuit was judged in his
6: favor about six weeks after he killed himself. Heartbreaking. Well, it, you know,
2: heroes and villains. I mean, Meek was a belligerent asshole who, who cheated some of his business partners, screamed at everybody, uh, waved, you know, threatened people with scissors, pointed a gun at Mitch Mitchell, all these things. But some of that might not have happened if he'd actually gotten what he'd, what he'd earned. Some of it. I don't know. Yep. I mean, some people were always going to be bad news.
0: I don't know. This movie, this portrayal in this movie also makes me think that he probably would have gotten worse if he had more success. <laughs> there seems to be a lot of ego going on is
4: what I'm saying. Yeah. If, yeah. If he could buy a lot up- of diet a- pills for $5 million. Yeah, oh, I was, I was
2: thinking that like, you know, if he had better drugs, this might've ended sooner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, And, uh, you know, I don't think it came up earlier, but at this point, being gay was a criminal offense in the UK,
6: actually having homosexual sex was also a criminal offense. I mean, being told you living is a crime that's a societal pressure.
2: That's, that's something that will be among the many things grinding down on you. And, and here it's the sort of, you know, is there a, p- perhaps a better use of police resources than huh. entrapment and, and, you know, arresting gay dudes who are forced to go out into a public lavatory if they want to have, you know, any kind of human contact with
6: people that share their, their uh, orientation? And Heinz Burt being a dickhead. Oh, Heinz. And this apparently did really happen, too. (laughs) and actually very true yeah
0: well Elvis stole it too right so I guess it's only fair
2: yeah I mean it's just a big long list of people
3: stealing acts (laughs) sweet kick
2: moves
3: (laughs) hell of a fighter that Heinz
2: yeah Alligator uh, mouth, tadpole ass, and he really did get his nose bitten onto her. You'll notice none of the tornadoes are helping at this point. No, yeah.
0: no, yeah, they all think he's a dick.
2: Somehow.
4: So the Peter Cushing looking dude here, uh, which who is he? Is he one I of the th- famous cameos?
2: I don't think he is. I think he's just a dude. Uh, later on, the board of Trademan is the crime novelist Jake Arnott. Uh, he wrote a book called "The Long Firm," in which Joe Meek is a
0: secondary character.
4: That is an unfortunate title. What was yeah. the name of that?
0: What was the name of that author again? Jake Arnott. A-R-N-O-T.
4: A R N O T.
6: Oh God. <laughs>
2: I can't even summon up the contempt for you on that one but <laughs> <laughs> <Right. sighs> oh, we well, we're that? an hour and five into the movie, and I guess we'll just
6: let that one slide. <laughs>
3: It's Probably just the house set, just some thumbtack printed off yeah. pictures on the wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah, they just redressed just it a, really quick, moved the staircase away. And
0: PVC piped his silver and put in as bars on the wall on the window.
2: This is also true that uh, Joe Meek was terrified that uh, his family would find out he was gay because mm. he was he was a hick from a hick town way in the rural north of London. When he was a kid, uh, he was eight or nine when he scratch-built a television. Like, I couldn't do that now. Yeah, what? <laughs> but he built a TV before the BBC was even broadcasting up to where he lived. Uh, you know, it was a farm family. They owned an apple and a cherry orchard. And he actually rigged up a scarecrow system. There were speakers in the trees. And whenever a bird would land on it and their weight would bring it down, a, co- a contact would be made and the speaker would blast out static and freak them out and make them leave. Wow. Uh, Also during the harvest time, he would hook up his record player to it and take requests for all the fruit pickers. So, I mean, he did have generosity. He did have some elements of his life where he was, you know, not always a screaming jerk who was pummeling people. And, uh, he did have some people work for him as assistants who then bailed and worked for other bands. Uh, the uh, Glad All Over, or sorry, Bits and Pieces by the Dave Clark Five pinched some of the stuff he was doing with Have I the Right. I mean, he was a legit innovator, but he was also a drug abusing innovator who felt the walls closing in on him
6: inch by inch when he wasn't looking. Wondering if, you know, they had bugged his studio. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And there we are. (laughs) And uh, this is one where he was trying to get the sound effect of coins dropping in a fountain. It's a crappy job, but somebody's got to do it. Oh, Jesus! It's the acoustic tiles, man. He's using the acoustic tiles. Yeah,
4: I would. I know it it wouldn't really resonate with the general audience at large, but I would have loved to see them dig into the production of some of the weirder tracks. Like there's something yeah. at the bottom of the well oh, or yeah. uh, man. I'm just, uh, actually star man or star star man or star men. Uh, sky men, That's right. Yeah.
2: And yeah. And that one was Jeff Goddard on vocals too. Really? Uh, there's another just absolutely fuck awful. Uh, Jeff Goddard song called girl bride. Like, if, if you ever want to hurt your own feelings, I really do recommend <laughs> giving Girl Bride a spin. Uh, when I, I used to do a, a giant CD-burning project called The Timothology, and disc 13 was always the, uh, the bad covers disc, but I never really had room for truly awful originals.
0: Brian, I was thinking the same thing. I, you know, Pretty much at the same time, I would love to see far a lot more of the uh, the crazy tactics he would come up with in pro- producing some of this stuff. Oh, yeah.
2: Uh, God, what is it? Either Till the Following Night, or there's another vampire song that I can't remember the title of. It starts with a 22-second long scream.
0: Oh, awesome. <laughs> I got to find that.
2: Yeah, uh, it's one of the tracks on the disc, It's Hard to Believe It, The Amazing World of Joe Meek, which is the first compilation that came out of his stuff. Uh, And I remember that because it happened to come up on Shuffle when I was at an A&W and the waitress came up to take my (laughs) order. It was like, what would you like? 22-second long human scream. I'd like a cheeseburger.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Everyone betray me. (laughs)
4: <laughs> You're tearing me apart, Catini. <laughs>
6: <laughs> and, and now is also a pretty good time to mention that Clem
2: Cattini is a Guinness Book of World Record holder for being the session drummer on more number one rock and pop hits than anybody else.
3: You know, the first one we see disappear.
2: and. Uh, also, I mean, he, uh, among other things was the drummer on Kung Fu fighting. Oh, nice. Yes.
3: <laughs> That's your biggest claim to fame.
4: Oh, this is like my fourth time watching this. And I just noticed that was Jimmy Carr standing there. That that shot. Yeah. Oh, yep. It is.
6: Look at that i can't do it laugh, i, I should sure. definitely know who jimmy
2: carr is but it's not coming to me right now
4: as a stand-up comedian british british comedian
2: uh
6: yeah he's credited as gentleman hmm.
3: yeah see this is the fun stuff of recording just trying to figure out what's going to make the right sound it's,
0: yeah yeah this is the kind of stuff that makes me want to just record my own music even though i have no musical talent or skill whatsoever.
3: Yeah, never stop meek. There's yeah. That's true. There's something akin to the like uh uh recording sound for movies and stuff, you know, fully work. Oh, yeah. But you could
4: do the producing. I have a feeling there's a guy sitting next to you who could play an instrument or two. (laughs)
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he's a he's a damn good producer in his own right. He doesn't need my help when it comes to producing music. I would think I would just get in this But if you want to produce (laughs)
4: weird novelty tracks, you come up with the melody and then scream it at him. And then he figures out how to play it on guitar.
0: (laughs) We've done that. (laughs) (laughs) We have done that.
2: So this is uh, Have I the Right, which was his last number one. And one of the very few songs to hit number one in 1964 that was not The Beatles or The Stones. So just oh, wow. you know, ponder on that one for a sec. It, the Beatles at the top of their powers, and the Stones on the come up to the absolute peak of their ability, and you beat both of them. My
6: no joke. My vote for best pop song ever made is "Have I the Right." Pretty
4: good. Yeah. The the beat and the tempo of this song also matches up perfectly with Judas Priest's "Living After Midnight."
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, one of my karaoke party tricks is to do "Living After Midnight," and then for the choruses, "Come Right Back." I just can't bear it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and this is one of those sort of Ed Wood. Up, oh, hey, cup of tea being made as a peace offering. Everybody, Drink. do a shot. Uh, as as these things go, uh, completely forgot what I was going to say. haha <laughs> ha! Editing. <laughs> Uh, leave that in but leave out me telling you to leave it in
4: (laughs) right you were talking about the uh, have I the right beating both the stones and the Beatles.
2: right okay so the it wasn't everybody like pounding on drums pointing at a single mic the percussion part of that was actually uh, the band stamping on a wooden staircase in his flat I'm guessing that because the staircase didn't actually go anywhere they couldn't get it to work in the shot but it's, it's one of those things uh, that if, you know, 304 Holloway Road still exists, it's still an apartment. If I won the lottery, it would be extremely tempting to rent it if it was available. And at 2 in the morning, just start stomping the fuck out of those stairs <laughs> because somebody has
1: to.
4: And for years, when the kids were in, in lower grades in school to where they would still have the class concert... Every single year I was after them to ask their music teachers if they could do have I the right for one of those shows and have 60 or 70 kids all stomping on the risers during the chorus. And it would be oh. so awesome. Even if they were singing completely the fuck out of tune and out of key. And it never Which happened. It kind of would be if you were
6: stamping on the risers. Oh man. Yeah. People just got to play more. Have I the Right. And, and a certain type of post war British masculinity that he, that's just, you know, a red, red flag to a bull. No, <laughs> nothing good can come of this. And of course, the neighborhood's getting a little worse and people are skeezy hanging outside. And oh, it's just, it's just not good. And you know, it's never a good sign when the guy trades out the white shirts for dressing head to toe entirely in black. (laughs) I feel bad for Jeff though, right? Oh, of course. I mean, he, he would have been,
2: I mean, assuming that he had romantic feelings for Joe Meek, which may or may not be an invention for the play and movie. He would have been so much of a better partner, a better match, oh, yeah, a better yeah. person. That it's one of the things that's heartbreaking about the movie is that Joe's got his eyes on the prize and he doesn't see what's right there for him.
0: Yeah, oh, well, that scene where he gives him that watch and Joe yeah. just steps on it. Fuck. Yeah, it's not engraved. It's heartbreaking. Like, yeah
2: supposedly that was a little bit intensified for the movie. Like he
6: was ticked off that it wasn't engraved, but he didn't destroy it. When Jeff seemed to be the only other person that
3: got the like out there. Vibe. Yeah. 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 He was coming from a, th- not just this earth kind of a place that no one else had.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, it, it's never good to be the only one who knows something or the only one who does something. I mean, it just, up, oh, hey, do another shot. Just <laughs> oh, two late. shots. <laughs> yep, double shot. Drink, fill, drink. Uh, yeah, it just, Heinz was not a good match. And Meek was so cruel because the world was
6: cruel to him and hurting people hurt people.
0: Doesn't Do they ever say how they met in this movie? I got uh, the impression they met, you know, some some of the uh, quick flashback <laughs> scenes and stuff. I got the impression they met at, like, the seances and stuff.
2: Uh, it's that they, uh, Jeff Goddard was, like, a songwriter trying to sell, you know, sell music to people and had an appointment with Meek. But they, uh, they were both known in, like, the spiritualist
3: and psychic circles
2: in London. I imagine that's a pretty small crowd in 1961.
3: Right. Yeah. That's such a funny scene there though, where he yells for Patrick as loud as he can. <laughs> <laughs> He's the right body. So funny. Breaks the tension a little bit. Oh.
6: And, and it's just, you know, it's awful. And a whole lot
2: of stuff should not have happened to a whole lot of people in this story. Yeah. Fantastic work here as you know, Uh, the actor playing Jeff Goddard
6: just knowing that he's walking away from something that's horrible. And you know, the mods and the rockers are on the horizon here. There's just,
3: yep. That green sweater lets you know.
6: And, you know, of
2: course, Heinz has to have the awesome car because he's the awesome star. Right. He's the, he's the blonde. Did they, yeah. Did they have the dialogue in it about how even
6: Elvis doesn't have a boat that Heinz has a boat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the red car and the red jacket. Yeah. Amongst Where the the grab, jacket, you know. Yeah. I don't know if you're going into a business meeting with Joe about this time, you might want to hang on to the tire iron. Oh, <laughs> oh. <no. laughs> and this is where he's mixing have I the right?
3: Did Joe build all this equipment?
2: Some of it. Uh, some of it was customized. Some of it he built like a box that he wouldn't let anybody look into. That was like his, he, he used a metal spring as a reverb and echo yep. gate. Yeah. But it was just like literally from like a garden gate, and he he turned it into audio equipment.
1: Fuck yeah! Oof!
6: Honestly,
0: who throws a shoe? You fight like a woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he
6: didn't throw that sucker. You hang on oh, to it. Oh man! You're a maniac. <laughs> yeah
4: heinz kind of <laughs> deserves it. oh yeah. and he's
2: got both of them have meltdown hair going on right now
4: yeah heinz <laughs> yeah, is the only one i don't really feel that bad for when he flips out on him yeah i mean granted he made heinz that way by turning him into a star and he wasn't ready for it like yeah he may or may yeah. not have had those uh leanings to be that kind of a personality before this but the fact remains he was still a douchebag. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. But right now, this is not the time to be hearing come right back.
6: I just can't. Yeah,
3: yeah some of my favorite acting is in this. Oh, show. yeah. I mean, it's just when you're an actor, you've got to have, you
2: know, a little bit of an ego to let yourself look this raw and desperate and afraid and tear and. You know, agonizing, just breaking down. Although there, there's a better Honeycomb song for this section. He, he did one called Color Slide about meeting someone. Doesn't say a girl, just someone on a vacation. Didn't get the name, doesn't know who they are anymore. will never see them again, but he's got a color slide
6: of their time together. Aww.
4: when i was watching this last week for the refresher before we did this commentary i was thinking that too at that scene where he's just freaking out turning all the knobs and stuff just trying to mix the song and he's just like he'll kind of get it under control and then he'll freak out again and they'll kind of get it under control and i was thinking watching that like what is he tapping into for that performance like yeah because i don't care how good of an actor you are that isn't just i'm just I can do this and then I'll be fine in five minutes. Like that's one of those scenes where like he needed half an hour in his trailer alone after that, you know? Yeah.
2: Uh, it reminds me more than a little of Brad Pitt at the end of seven where like
6: rage and grief are at war at the same time. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the
4: Yeah. And then just for an extra kick in the dick, I was prepared to be talked down.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? There, there really isn't anything that you could tell this guy at this point. We've all uh, known people in our lives uh, yeah. where you can't tell them anything. They're always right, especially when they're wrong. And you're always wrong, especially when you're right. Why are you looking as, at me, as Jason? Much hey. as, as much as he is my cultural hero, as much as Joe Meek is just somebody that I view as an icon of, of the art that shaped my personality, there are times in this movie that I just want to slap him until my hand goes numb. Only you had
0: a shoe. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was, he was a, a farm boy. He was a stocky dude. I, I would not want to get in a fight with him. I mean, beyond you don't want to break the nose of your cultural hero. I would not want to get into a ruckus with that dude.
3: There's ego and there's cockiness, and I think the, when it's when it's cocky, I love it. So I don't know, just that fucking raspberry gives him. So oh yeah, funny punk <laughs> rock man. But yeah, I love it.
2: So uh, since I'm noticing those sunglasses on the table, Oh, never mind. Jesus. this really happened (laughs) this really happened oh my god that was Heinz's shotgun he was like a bird hunter or something and i guess joe kept the gun
5: yeah it's like whiplash on steroids
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah how do you i'm surprised he got that much played without
6: peeing himself yeah i mean And this is return of the vampire, I believe either night of a return of the vampire by the
2: moon trekkers, the moon trekkers being the band that came in with Rod Stewart on vocals and Joe threw him out and had them do <laughs> instrumentals.
4: One of the wisest moves he ever made. Cause Rod Stewart is fucking terrible.
2: <laughs> I, I will now say one nice thing about Rod Stewart. He is a model railroad enthusiast who brought like his modeling gear along on tours so that instead of like drinking for hours or doing drugs or whatever to relax after a show, he just starts putting together tiny little buildings for his giant model railroad setup. And honestly, I find that very endearing.
4: Yeah, that is pretty cool.
2: Yeah. I don't like him as a musician, but as a a nerdy hobbyist, honestly, that's world-class.
3: But well, we've all cried while recording. It's it's just part of it. Honestly, if
2: if if somebody pointed a shotgun at me and said, uh, "Are you going to do it properly, or am I going to blow your head off?" I would piss my pants and someone else's.
1: Yeah, Hopefully. I mean, it would
6: just, yeah. That's that. I'm surprised Joe let
3: Patrick look like a beetle.
6: Oh, everyone looked like a beetle at that point. There's
2: nothing you can do about it. But yeah, I mean, watching them literally fade out of oh, yeah. life. just And that's it. Yeah. It, you know, there's only so many bridges you can burn until yep. you,
6: you don't over. have anywhere else you can go. And nobody is going to go to you. having to
3: watch him just keep digging the hole waiting on that check Ugh, yeah
6: just a time i mean off. if he
2: lawyered up he probably could have beaten it in about six or six or eight weeks i mean they like civil suits happen all the time but they get thrown out by the judge all the time uh you know i don't know if you guys have seen uh uh the king of kong but Billy oh, Mitchell, yeah. the, the heavy in that, sued the Cartoon Network because he claimed a character on a show was supposed to be a parody of him. And the judge just tossed it. I mean, if you respond with a lawyer who knows what they're doing, you can get through this stuff. But unfortunately, you know, now we
6: have archive footage of the, the Liverpool mop tops and, and here we are.
4: This could just be my personal musical bias and because obviously Meek produced pop music, but it it always seems odd to me when such an incredibly intense personality produces such largely innocuous music, at least the number one hits, but the weirder stuff like the things the moon trackers did and what screaming Lord such were doing kind of makes me think when had Meek survived, like we were talking about earlier to produce other kinds of music I have a feeling that when he heard Slayer or Metallica or Hellhammer for the first time, he would have gone, Ooh, this is interesting.
2: Well, all and right, I, I, then.
4: Would, I would just love to hear what a Joe Meek produced death metal album would sound like. And I know none of the three bands I just name checked are death metal, so none of you nerds out there start sending hate mail to the podcast. But
3: Hearing that Overdrive Black Sabbath for the first time. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. What about Sabbath?
2: Yeah. I mean, that would have been roughly the right time period if he'd made it.
4: And that was, honestly, that sound came from an ingenuity similar to Meeks with the drawing pins on the hammers of the piano and that kind of thing, where Tony Iommi chopped his fingers off in a sheet metal crimper and went, well, I still want to play guitar. What am I going to do? So he tuned his guitar real low so the strings weren't so hard to press down, and he built these weird little thimble things so that he had actual full-length fingers to play with, and voila, metal is born out of that same kind of uh, DIY just, I have to make this art, so how am I going to do it? What do I have around the shop?
2: I think overall, maybe if he hadn't chopped his fingers in a sheet metal crimper, that might have worked out better. <laughs> if he had it to do over again, maybe don't chop your fingertips off in a sheet metal crimper.
4: Now he made an awful lot of money off of those nubs. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm sure he doesn't have any regrets anymore.
2: Oh, oh, honestly, no. It's just every, every so often I, you know, you got to make the the reference to, well, if I had it to do again, I wouldn't have suffered a life threatening and life altering injury. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm the dude who slipped and fell at a movie theater and shattered his wrist. When your osteopath uses the word cornmeal to describe what's going oh, on, oh, fuck. Oh that's, that's bad news. Uh, so the, the sunglasses there, there was a British, uh, high end haberdashery firm called Cutler and gross that made wraparound black shades specifically to look like Joe Meek's glasses. And earlier this year, I finally found a pair on eBay Oh, and they are way too small for my head. Oh. So I
3: but I had them. That's Awesome.
2: Yeah, what I really ought to do is just find somebody who has, you know, big
6: wraparound black sunglasses that can fit my giant melon, and then that will be okay. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, right now,
2: he's, he's a dinosaur. This is, yep. he is wearing a suit and a tie,
6: and everyone else is wearing, you know, hippie ponchos and nine color bell bottoms. And you know, the lines on your face aren't going away. Stuff is different now.
3: So those audio, uh, those recordings exist of his.
2: Yeah. He did keep an audio diary. Uh, if you have the long out of print box set, uh, Joe Meek, Fortune of a Genius, the RGM sound. There are some excerpts from his audio diary on them. Right. Uh, actually, you know, funny little bit on that. That that uh, box set took an extra three or four years to come out from when they thought it would, just because legal rights are all over the frickin' place. Uh, I actually emailed Roger Dobson, the guy who was putting it together, and asked if a particular song was going to be on it. And, uh, he called me a shithead basically in the response, claiming that he had never been approached by everybody, anybody who wanted to have, you got to have a gimmick today on, uh, <laughs> on any release, uh, told me he thought it was a gross insult to the Joe Meek legacy. And oh. then later on in another compilation, put it on anyway. So, ha, <laughs> <laughs> feel free to bleep his name out. <laughs> when you do this but somewhere i believe i still have the email and that's the board of trade man played by the crime novelist who put joe meek in a uh, in a novel as a secondary character about uh, gangsters
6: in london spanning a time frame of the 50s through the 80s or so And you know, another horror movie moment in here, here's where the light comes in and hits the
2: vampire. Yeah.
0: I mean, they're, exactly. they're
2: filming this like a horror movie. They're filming definitely. it. Like it's not going to survive this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It definitely gave me some Nosferatu vibes.
2: Or even the sequel.
3: Nosferatu three.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> yeah. The high hat. That's what uh, that's the big money item there.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, they're taking anything they can flog for a little bit of money. And honestly, being a musician means being broke. So there's got to be pawn shops and secondhand shops that will give them a little bit of money for this stuff.
4: See, what but they I mean, needed in this scene was somebody who looked like Peter Cushing to drive him into a corner with two crossed mic stands and then leap across the room and yank that thing off the window like you're tearing the curtains down at the end of *Order of Dracula*. That then would work. really have. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And and I have the feeling that, that Joe Meek spent a lot of time watching Hammer movies. I just have the opinion of that. I mean, lots of songs about vampires, lots of songs about this sort of thing. And yeah, if if it's nineteen sixty seven, we're hitting the end of the story.
3: Uh, did he do a lot of painting?
2: Or is this just He he did uh, he burnt a lot of the paintings that he had done, but there was one called The Lady with the Crying Eyes that I believe still survives in somebody's collection. But yeah, I mean, he also tried this stuff. And, you know, if you're drawing a woman who's who's got tears running out of her eyes when you're thinking about, oh, hey, what do you know? Uh-huh. Uh, when you're thinking about your life and trying to express yourself, I think it all comes right back to him trying not to disappoint his family because like he left the farm he made his way in the big city for a while he really was a legit success and and then it all just started to
6: crumble bit by bit piece by piece and uh i just you know
2: everyone who knows what really happened over the next you know 15 minutes of, of screen time is already dead, but I would like to think it was some sort of ghastly accident that he realized he couldn't ever put right. Like, that's the
6: best case scenario. Yeah. Meek at Abbey Road. They wanted
2: him to. Uh, I think AM offered him a position as well, like a really high up one. It's just that he'd been treated so badly by so many studios uh, because, you know, the pioneers, the guy with the arrows in his back uh, that he just, he didn't trust them anymore. And again, I mean, we're also looking at half a decade of amphetamine use and, and poverty and discrimination and paranoia and fear. I mean, none of that stuff's good for you. That's basically just a, you know, one drop of hydrochloric acid on that marble block of your inner self every fucking day. And sooner or later it gets eaten through sooner or later it's gone. My, my brain chemistry tried to kill me for four and a half years and every single day of it sucked. And I mean, I, I took antidepressants all through high school. I barely remember high school because of that, which is honestly probably a good thing. And I, I took a bronze in the screw up your life Olympics a couple times doing, doing some stupid stuff. I flunked out of two colleges. I Dean's listed at two other colleges later. So my lifetime average is C plus. Thank you very much. But like (laughs) I, I made some rotten ass choices while my brain chemistry was not working right. And As part of that, you know, all of those bad choices, everything that, that just hurt like hell while it was happening. And when I look back, I can't believe I actually did it, but I, you know, literally was not in my right mind. All of that stuff got blasted away the first time that I heard Telstar. That was something that literally, I think it rewrote my DNA and it rewrote my personality and made it possible for me to experience optimism and joy again after a very long time.
3: Aw.
2: So I hope you like the movie, basically. (laughs) You better fucking like it. (laughs) You're not. Oh, and this also is true that he got burned very badly by phosphorus when he was a kid. And there was sort of an open question about whether or not he'd ever be able to use his hands. Because they apparently had some kind of phosphorus compound on the farm for a pesticide or something. And, you, you know, if it sparks and poofs into smoke when, when you throw it on the ground, he tried clapping his hands
6: when it was on there. And that turned out to be a really bad move. And I mean, right here, just like watching his face, it's like somebody is he's, he's like a marionette with somebody else controlling the strings. He's he's a puppet with somebody else moving that stuff. Kids are so ungrateful. And and that's
2: part of it too. I mean, From his point of view, he gave and gave and gave and gave, and that's partly true, but he also took and took and took and took. Uh, He used to credit uh, Robert Duke as a songwriter so that he didn't have to share royalties. Like Robert Duke did not exist, Uh
1: so
6: uh, those royalty checks went to Joe instead. Which also means that if I ever like fake my death and you get a letter from Robert Duke, it's probably
2: me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, what's that pseudonym?
6: That's Joe Meek's pseudonym. Okay. I know who sent this. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you know, And here he can't bring himself to hit Heinz. Like this is the the point where he's broken down
2: so much, but there's still that awful species of, of love
6: somewhere in there, and he can't bring himself to hit the guy. Gotta suck when it's your own shotgun, you're staring the barrel down. Ooh, yeah. This music here sounds
4: a little bit like the score Brian Eno composed for Neverwhere huh? BBC miniseries, which was Neil Gaiman's first produced uh, on film project.
6: You know, when all else, when all else fails, maybe the devil can help. Last ditch effort. Yeah. yeah I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to run to
2: Satanism as like a first fallback.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I understand he was, you know, into this whole thing. But this whole scene seems so out of left field. When yeah, I feel like they probably should have explored a little bit more of that side of him, so that this wouldn't be such a yeah a weird it's, moment. It's
2: a bit out of nowhere, and and it's a little bit cinematic shorthand for for you know, and the breakdown. But but it's you know. It's also showing how absolute rock bottom he's at. I mean, most biopics. We, you know, we uh, we were talking about musical biopics in a previous bonus episode for Patreon subscribers, of whom I am one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the the American biopic version of Telstar ends five minutes after that montage of the song playing. Yeah. And then you get like some credits explaining, oh, and later on, through a psychotic break brought upon by amphetamine abuse, uh, there was a murder suicide at his ap- apartment slash studio. Whereas this one just shows you every single inch of, of all the way down of the entire. There we go. 3rd of February, 1967. There is Rough an day. Alan there's an Alan Moore spoken word track about this day called number
6: one with a bullet. (laughs) Oh gosh. And, uh, after his death, a lot of the, the tapes that he
2: had in the flat, were sold at a, at auction to a school that bought them and bulk erased them and used them in just like music.
3: Oh, classes. No,
2: you know, uh, the they're, tragedy they're, continues.
6: Well, it, it's, you know, the
2: deaths of two human beings are a lot worse than, than losing what was on those tapes. But my God, do I wish that, it was possible to listen to those. I mean, there's yet another time machine
6: stop, I guess. Yeah. If you can't save him, at least save the art. Well, here we go. Yeah.
2: I mean, there are a lot of songs about him. Reckless Eric did a track that's just called Joe Meek. Uh, Oh yeah! Right. Can't I remember there, the dude's name, but there's one called "He stood on the ba- he stood in the bath and he stamped on the floor." <laughs> uh, I mean, I I do have a playlist called "Joe Meek Fights Back from the Grave," and it's songs about him, songs in his style, covers, things like that. That's cool. Where it you know, the Joe Meek song is not uh, the
6: sound is not dead. It's not completely gone. No.
3: Was it an accident?
6: Was I would like to think it
3: was. Yeah, he had nothing ill towards her.
2: No, no. She'd let him stay there for an extra year. Without <laughs> thing I mean, wow. Yeah. Uh, my mom once joked that the real moral of the Joe Meek story is don't rent to musicians.
1: <laughs>
3: oh, 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 oh. She might be onto something. <laughs>
1: yeah, which also
2: means that my mom made a sicker joke than any of you did.
6: Huh? <laughs> Props, Miss Lennerer.
0: <laughs> well, I got the impression throughout the film too. Uh, like he respected her more than anyone else. Oh yeah. Anyone oh, yeah. else I've that been, was around him? A substitute mother figure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, throughout the movie, if you want, he's always like apologizing to her and, you know, he, he he could be on a rant and then like she shows up and he just puts on a smile and calms down. Yeah,
6: the control rods are put back in. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, you know, everything falling apart here, everything just getting as bad as it can possibly get. I, uh, you know, we, we mentioned earlier
2: that I'm on uh, fiasco brothers, watch a movie. Whenever we'd drop an episode, we would occasion, you know, we'd try to tweet to the director or an actor who was in it or something like that as kind of a publicized, you know, publicize it a little. Sure. The only person who ever responded was Con O'Neill thanking Uh us for covering the movie.
3: Oh my gosh. That had to make your day. And then some. Week. (laughs) decade (laughs) maybe if if it was only going
2: to be one yep then i i really wish that was the one and and here you know it's the thing that you can't you can't ever put it back you can't ever fix it everything else there was at least a possibility of putting
3: it back yep there's no return from that No.
2: In the Alan Moore track, he mentions thinking about that gun going off and wondering what
6: it would sound like with the impression and echo.
3: Yeah. If those
6: mics were on. Yeah. I
3: watched it with Tina. She thought that the Patrick story was maybe even more tragic. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, he, had to watch all of it and got blamed for it and yeah, missed out on Joe's gift. Oh, this is, this is rough. <laughs> this is a good one. Oh God. Yeah. Oof. I mean, and horror. there's no
2: way to glamorize that. There's no way to do like a little pop and everything's okay. Yeah. You know, it's the end of the movie.
0: I find the image of him looking through, the banister pulls at Patrick putting that gun in his mouth, far more shocking than the execution of the, uh, of the gunfire. Mm. Oh yeah.
6: And there's that iconic shot with the wraparound shades. So close. It so many different ways it could have gone. Oh man. I'll, I'll read these to you later mike okay so you know good say. good
2: <laughs> and this is duffy uh, an r&b singer from Wales, i believe
6: covering uh please stay by the cry and shames that's yeah, a cool version
0: And they found some actors that look amazingly close. I yeah, mean, I thought they did a good job at the casting on this. Yeah. Yeah.
6: And hey, Telebingo. <laughs> Join this little band, the yeah. purple. So, <laughs> some sort of something. And, you know, whatever else
2: happened for the rest of his career, he's like, well, at least Joe isn't screaming at me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you guys ever watch uh, How Are You Being Served, the British sitcom? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Okay, so Mr. Spooner, I think, the young, younger guy, was played by Mike Barry, and Mike Barry was also a meek artist, just you know, didn't happen to be a, a character in this. Huh. Yeah, there's even an episode where they talk about Mr. Spooner having had a pop career. So it was something from his
6: genuine past. Uh, the other possible track that you could play at the end of this
2: is one of the saddest goddamn songs you're ever going to hear, and it's called Nobody Waved Goodbye.
6: If you ever want to hurt your own feelings. <laughs> oh, man. Prolific. Well, burning that candle at both ends and the middle.
2: but thank you guys so much for uh for indulging me on this one (laughs) there justin hawkins that's the name i couldn't remember (laughs) and yeah chauffeur clem cattini mr brolin Chaz hodges sir edward john layton stagehand
6: robbie duke just all the way down
0: well you're welcome (laughs) And thank you for uh, bringing this movie in for the tenor (laughs) uh, to my attention, you know, and learning more about Joe because you know, I've had some experience with the, some of the music, but never knew the uh, man genius behind it. So now I want to deep dive into a lot more of this
4: music. Yeah. I was going to say that's uh, all the things that come out
2: of Brian can send to you.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I could set up a wee transfer file that would take about 16 years to go <laughs>
3: through. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what but, I love. And, about- and we were, we
4: were talking about earlier that, you know, constantly trying to come up with all these horror connections through the thing and joking about how this is going to be the episode that nobody downloads. And, and but <laughs> e- even though it's not obviously a horror movie and, and the connections to horror are just mostly tenuous jokes, I hope, people do watch this one because of this, that like people who otherwise would never have even heard of it or given it a chance at least. Um, and, Cause it's a fucking great movie and it's a great story and there's some fantastic music in it.
2: Pretty much. I mean, I, I, with my $10, I have sort of colonized this space in the name of the fiasco brothers. <laughs> I'm probably going to do it again. <laughs> but I, I promise I will find something a little bit more Attack of the Killer Podcast appropriate on the next one, <laughs> and then when you're not expecting it, oh, I'm yeah. going to find something to really make you wonder why you made that offer in the first place.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, we have been debating about changing some of the
3: yeah. Now that you mention it, we, uh, <laughs> benefits. Of, <laughs> we're going to revisit
4: those. Uh, tears awesome. a little bit yeah commentaries are now at the hundred and fifty dollars oh, here <laughs>
2: that's really odd well if that happened i would save my if if you really did that i would be forced to make you watch i bought a vampire motorcycle
0: yeah i, I, like I don't think you have to force me to watch that based on title alone i'm game uh okay oh gosh <laughs> what have you done <laughs>
2: I, You know, there's stuff that I really do want people to see. There's stuff where I'm pretty sure they might like it, and there's stuff that even I think you should handle it with tongs and not look at it directly. And I bought a vampire motorcycle as kind of a, uh, a feature-length Benny Hill sketch, but not in a particularly good way. <laughs>
0: Dude, you're talking to the guy that just made all of the guys on this show watch Sledgehammer for the last episode. So
2: yeah, well, and Truth or Dare, Critical Madness, which yeah. Jim's
3: a big fan. I love I, that movie.
2: I love that movie too. That's that's a strange little mutant. It's a it's Florida Man, the slasher movie. <laughs> uh, it's really great. It was directed by an 18 year old. When I was 18, I was shelving books at the Wheaton Library for something like 5.25 an hour. I didn't make a movie. I didn't even think I could make a movie at that point. I don't think I could make one now. So yeah, you know, other than also being named Tim, there's there's nothing I could have with that. <laughs> awesome.
4: So there was a moment about five or four or five years ago, maybe longer, at, at a B-Fest where uh, uh, my friend Matt <laughs> was along for the ride. He was, he's done shows with us a couple of times. He was on the Mad Scientist episode with us. Um we were all at the same hotel, and he opened his hotel room door to come out to, you know, we were all gathering in the lobby or whatever. And as he opened his door, the sight he was greeted with was uh Tim pushing me sitting in a rolling office chair doing like some weird Lord of the Dance uh pose with my hands, and both of us going to this day, Matt swears like that is the spirit of B Fest for him was that
2: I I donated a copy of Truth or Dare on DVD to the raffle, and when the guy won it, me and a bunch of people around me were all going dun dun dun
0: dun 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 dun
2: dun 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 as he walked down the auditorium aisle
0: to get his disc. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, that's it folks. That wraps up the commentary episode here. Uh, Thanks Tim for being on and for um, being an attacker and bringing this, uh, this awesome movie. You know, they can't all suck, (laughs) (laughs) but I've found
2: some that try. And, and again, thank you so much for indulging me on this. I realize it is extremely far afield from your usual stuff and that you didn't have to do this at all, but I'm ever so glad that you did.
0: Well, me too. Me too.
3: Yeah. I think for all the reasons, obviously the movie is good, but I know Tad, Mike and I really, the, the music is what I can't wait to get into even more. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. And I'm thank, I'm thankful that uh, you pointed some, our direction. That's great.
2: Uh, iTunes has a collection called the alchemist of pop. Uh, I think it's 10 bucks a disc and that's the best, like one package compilation you can find. Uh, the box sets way, way, way stupid out of print. Uh, there's a single disc one called it's hard to believe it that has a lot of good stuff on it too, but, but, uh, like on a budget, uh, you know, I would like this amount of stuff. I would say alchemist to pop is probably your best bet. Uh, all the hits, some of the misses and a couple of things where you're just like, what in God's name could he possibly have been thinking?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Mike awesome. wants to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the stuff. Oh, hell yeah. I, uh,
2: uh, Brian mentioned it a couple times. Uh, there's something at the bottom of the well sounds like a nursery rhyme from Lovecraft country. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and actually to you guys and to everyone out there who's listening to this I did put together a playlist on YouTube that you can listen to called Joe Meek's gravest hits. So all of this and more will be on there and we'll will make you wonder just what the heck is going on. Honestly.
0: Very cool. That wraps it up folks for this episode of Attack of the Killer Podcast. And until next time, um yeah. <laughs> See you in I the charts. Want, I just want the air conditioning <laughs> on. So <laughs> thanks for listening, folks. Have a good night. Talk to you in the next episode of Attack of the Killer Podcast.
3: Oh no, could this be the end of Attack of the Killer Podcast?